Sorry about that, Father Howard. So, good morning to you all. I'm doing something a little bit different today that I was unable to print up my sermon. So I'm going to use my iPad, and hopefully I'll, I'll not get onto some other thing or track somewhere else. Let me say what a pleasure it is to be with you all. I don't get to come to Henderson uh, enough, and of course with the pandemic things have been shut down, so we were supposed to have, uh, I think, nine confirmations, but I wasn't able to make it uh, in time before some had to move away, and I apologize for that, but the Lord is great, and His church is broad and wide, and I know that they were confirmed and filled with the Holy Spirit, and are in the midst of ministry, which is exactly what we uh, expect today for Howard and Thomas and Jared as God the Holy Spirit enters into them and uses them as his instruments of grace. But we do that in the midst of a very complex world. Let me ask you a question. Is the devil real? Are, Are demons real? What are uh, armaments to fight in this uh, battle, in this spiritual battle? I would like to give you three ways to do that, to enter into that battle. And it's exactly what we're sending out uh, Howard and Thomas and Jared to do. Why are we discussing this? Well, the gospel drives us there. We're in the ninth chapter of the gospel of Mark. Jesus and his disciples have gone up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, There, Jesus has been transfigured before uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, the three primary disciples. Elijah and Moses show up on on his side representing the law and the prophets. Peter has this wonderful say, Oh, let us build a tent here and stay here forever. Wouldn't all of us want to do that if you were in the presence of the transfigured Christ? And yet, the Lord speaks out to them from the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. In verse 7. It's at that point that Jesus and the disciples uh, set their sights toward Jerusalem and the cross. Now, they've been confronted uh, before this, but immediately... The mission is met with opposition from spiritual forces of wickedness and oppositions from within the the religious leadership. We're told that, as the scene picks up in today's gospel, that Jesus comes upon a confrontation from the scribes against against the disciples. And it's all because a man has brought to, to the disciples his son. He is worried sick for his son who has a demon. And he says in verse 17 and 18, Teacher, I brought you my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast cast it out, and they were not able. Of course, Jesus has mercy on this boy and his father, and he casts out the demons. But this isn't the first time that Jesus has this confrontation. Just a couple chapters back, we read that about the Syrophoenician woman whose, whose daughter had a demon, and Jesus did the same thing as she demonstrates a, a deep and profound faith when she calls out 
uh, to Jesus, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And of course, we read this, and from a modern standpoint, this is all very, very upsetting. Really? You know, demons? Doesn't your mind immediately go, when you read the scripture or hear it read, to natural, physical, and scientific, understandably, understandable reasons for what happened? I mean, what this man describes is what we would say is an epileptic seizure. The boy falls down, he, he rattles back and forth, his hands curl, and he becomes rigid. But scripture is clear that while there is physical manifestation that resembles epilepsy, the cause is due to spiritual attack. And in our Western mindset, that is just hard to grasp. And yet, around the world, it's not hard to grasp at all. If you go to Latin America or Africa or, or Asia, there's not a question of are we mitts in this, in, of a spiritual battle. There's not a question of are there... Are there uh, uh, personified evil spiritual beings. It's just a part of life. And yet we from the West say, oh, no, no, we're much too sophisticated and enlightened for that kind of supernatural nonsense. But if we accept the fact that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle, there are, there are three primary questions that we have to ask. The first is, who do we fight? The second is, what do we fight? And the third is, how do we fight? So, who do we fight? A couple weeks ago we read from uh, St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 6, and he laid it out very clearly that he said, Put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Ephesians 6 verses 11 and 12. Now, let me be clear, this does not mean that evil does not have physical manifestations. It absolutely does. Today is September 12th. Yesterday we remembered the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Clear, clear manifestations, physical manifestations of evil. And yet, even in the midst of that, we ask, well, what psychologically must have been wrong with these people? What sociologically must have been wrong with these people? What were their parents thinking? They obviously didn't love them very much. I mean, if you looked at the news after 9-11, the pundits were just asking these questions over and over again, and what did we do? No one asked the question about evil. In the mid-1990s, Andrew Del Banco, a secular liberal and professor at Columbia University wrote a really powerful book called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost a Sense of Evil. The first line of that book is gripping. It says, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. We jettison in the West the concept of evil because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms like dysfunction and pathology. And he goes on to give an illustration of this that many people would know if you've ever read the, the book uh, Silence of the Lambs or seen the, the uh, movie. He uses this line or this scene. 
It's the first time that uh, Officer Starling has gone to see Hannibal Lecter in that specialized uh, cell. And she meets with him and there's this obvious fear and, and tension. But then she turns away <clears throat> and she says to the person standing next to her, what happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to him that he would be so cruel? And Dr. Lecter hears her say this and he calls her over and he says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anyone, anybody's fault. Look at me. And can you stand to say, I am evil? Del Banco goes on to say, the modern West cannot answer the monster's question. And he's right. We cannot in our culture, in our mindset, account for the depth and pervasiveness of evil. But thanks be to God, we don't have to. That's not our problem because we have the Word of God. The Bible is very clear to say that evil came from, the, from God giving free will to two races of beings, spiritual beings and physical beings. The first they were, they were angels with following, uh, following the archangel uh, Lucifer who, exercising their free will, said, I want to be like God, and were cast out from heaven. The second, our first parents, Adam and Eve, exercising their free will, fell into the same temptation, leaving deep scars on our hearts and souls. Yes, there are deep psychological and sociological factors that aggravate and accentuate and, and, and shape our radical desire for, um, for a power, our radical self-absorption, our, our radical insecurity. But these things are aggravated by the devil, and that's what makes the world the way it is. St. Paul is absolutely right. When he says, we wrestle against spiritual forces of evil. Friends, let me be very clear. There is a devil. There are demons. And we need to understand that. One of the things that's always confused me, and perhaps many of you as well, is there have been so many people who will clearly acknowledge God and clearly acknowledge angels and say, yes, there are good personified spiritual beings. <clears throat> but I can't tell you uh, the number of times when I've asked people, you know, what is the devil? They'll say, oh, the devil's sort of like, a, like a, a, a spiritual force, sort of like yin and yang. God is the good power and the devil is the bad power. And I think, wow, the devil's one. Right? If he's able to convince us that there's nothing personified, that he's just some sort of good power, we are in trouble. Friends, if the Bible is true, and it is, 
then we will not be able to understand, let alone defeat the powers of darkness in our own heart, let alone the world around us if we think that the, that the tools that we have are simply psychological and sociological. So the next question, what do we fight? Well again, St. Paul is correct. We fight the devil's schemes. In Ephesians 6, that term schemes in Greek is methodia, method. Uh, 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 strategies that the devil uses. He must have an arsenal of weapons and strategies that he brings against us. And if you've ever read C.S. Lewis in the, in the screw tape letters, he uh, very profoundly says there are two great uh, errors that are equal and opposite about the devil. And those two errors um, are about the two strategies, right? One is to say that um, there is no devil, that it's just a, a myth that he, you know, if, if, if we picture him, he's, you know, got a red cape and a horn and, uh, and, a red, and a long tail and all that kind of stuff. Oh, if only the devil did look like that and we could recognize him, right? I mean, what does the devil look like? Me. And you. So the first error is to absolutely deny him, to just wash him away, to say he's some sort of a myth. The second is to put too much emphasis on him, to, to, put, to attribute too much uh, power to him. Remembering, of course, in these two strategies, that the, that the devil is the prince of liars. That all he does is lie. Even that term devil in the Greek, diabolos, is the root for diabolical, right? Which is the verb to lie and to slander. That's all the devil does. He lies and he slanders us. And those are his primary tools. Maybe Ms. Harris can answer a question for me. Um, Tim Keller uses an illustration that really resonated with me. He says that the way the devil works is he never actually touches us. Right? He just speaks to us. And he compared it to uh, a person who plays a piano, which is why I asked. And if you open up, which I have, you see all the strings in a, in a, uh, a piano. He says, if you lean over that piano and you sing a note, a particular string will... I guess vibrate, whatever it does to make the sound, right? Resonate. Is that true? Yes. It's true, right. So, so that what the devil does, he says, is he, he knows the notes that will resonate with our insecurities, with our woundedness. He says that's why, he says that's what the devil does. He says, again, the devil cannot make a good person bad the devil makes a flawed person worse. The devil plays on in our insecurities, our wounds. He aggravates what is already in you through lies. And there are two great and primary ways that he does it. The first is through temptations. Right? Essentially, he gets you to have too high of a view of yourself so that you go and do things that you shouldn't. And in this view of temptation, Satan um, minimizes God's holiness and his anger towards sin 
And he maximizes God's love. And the second is accusation. The devil's way to try to get you to have too low a view of yourself. Self-hatred. In this one, God's love is diminished and God's holiness, his anger towards sin, is accentuated. And sadly, both of these lies work. In the 17th century, there was a, a Puritan by the name of Thomas Brooke who wrote, Brooks, who wrote a, a really terrific book. If, if I highly recommend it to you. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And you can actually get it on Amazon for 99 cents. In this, he lists scores and scores and scores of ways that, that Satan tempts us and Satan uses ac- accusations. But I'd like to just point out four of them. One, he says, he shows you the bait and he hides the hook. Right? So that sense, he gets you to look at the short-term pleasure, but he hides the long-term misery that comes after that. He gets you by, by uh, rationalizing your sin as virtue. When we say, well, I'm not really greedy, I'm just thrifty. I'm not nosy or gossipy, I'm just concerned. By showing you the sins of Christian leaders. Look, if, if he did it, well, it can't be that bad. Or by overstating the mercy of God. Don't worry. God's good. He'll forgive you. And the second form is accusation. Here are four ways that, God, that Satan uses accusation. The first is by causing us to look more at our sin than at our Savior. Uh, yesterday, Friday night, I had uh, dinner with the Gileses and we were talking about this. That if we look at more of that sin, that, that criticism rests in us much more than uh, praise does. My guess is that if I asked you to close your eyes and think of the last person who criticized you, you could be able to do it. And not only would you be able to do it, but you would, you would know the feeling, you would hear their voice, you could, you could visualize them. But if I asked you, who gave you the last uh, bit of praise, you're going to be harder pressed to find that. And, and as we were talking with Father Howard in his ministry, he was saying, it really takes, what did you say, f- seven uh, praises to one criticism or something Two to one. Oh, two, to start. Two, two praises to one criticism. Secondly, he ca- by causing you to obsess over past sins that have done damage that cannot be undone. And to just think about that over and over again. Look at what an awful person you are. Third, by making Christians think that the trouble they are going through must be God's punishment and wrath. This wouldn't have happened to me if I wasn't such an awful person. And the fourth, by making people think that, the inner, that their inner struggles that they are having, real Christians do not have. These are people who have clearly not read the lives of the saints. Right? You read the lives of the saints and you see what normal people these are. And that's why we can relate with them. They go through the same struggles and, and pains and sorrows and yet God uses them as His instruments. The, the question is, my guess, is that one or more of these we will all resonate with at one level 
or another, and that is only a sign that the Prince of Lies is active, whispering in our ear. So then the third question is, how do we fight the most important question? So here's the secret to fighting the devil and his min minions. Ready? Jesus. Now that just sounds so, it's like, oh, yeah, well, obvious, it's Jesus. Most specifically, we see this in the liturgies of baptism and confirmation, which we're about to go through in just a few minutes. In just a few minutes, uh, Thomas, Thomas and Howard and Jared will be presented for baptism. I'll ask them to confess their faith. And I'll ask them a series of questions. And the first are with renunciations. I will say, do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? And the answer is, I renounce them. Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. The second step in the spiritual battle um, after the... Oh, first, the first step is to acknowledge that Satan exists, which is implicit in each one of those questions. The second step is the renunciation. To intentionally say, I renounce these. But the most important role in the spiritual battle is the intentional turning toward Christ, as stated in the affirmations. I will ask, do you turn to Jesus Christ and confess Him as your Lord and Savior? I do. Do you joyfully receive the Christian faith as revealed in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments? I do. Will you obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of your life? I will, the Lord being my helper. What are the three weapons in the spiritual battle? The first is confessing Christ as our Lord and Savior, not hiding our light under a bushel. I was really pleased this morning as I was, as I was uh, checking out in this, uh, of, of the hotel in this odd thing. There's a baseball team visiting there. And their name is the Diablos. And this, this mom is checking out, and her son's next to her, and she's wearing a shirt named Diablos. And the, uh, the, the woman at the counter says, I love that name. And she says, I hate it. I'm a Christian, and it's the opposite of what I want. And I kept asking them not to have this name. And I thought, good for you. You're sending mixed messages, but good for you. Right? I mean, here's a woman who clearly said, I'm a Christian and I don't like this name. And so I said in myself, don't wear the shirt, but that's different. There is power in the name of Jesus. If we are confronted by Satan, the answer is to rebuke him in the name of Jesus. This is exactly what the disciples did. If we go back to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, remember when the 70 come back in and they are thrilled and they say, um, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He says in verse 17. Second, turning to the word of God and the teachings of the faith of the church as we have received them throughout the ages. Jesus is the Word incarnate. 
John in his gospel proclaims in the very first chapter, in the very first verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. God, the Holy Spirit, who has been revealing His truth throughout the ages, through His Scriptures, and to the church. We need to turn to the faith of the church to say this is what is real, and this is what is false. In a world that is constantly proclaiming that they are the determiner of reality, we know that that's not true. If left to our own devices, we're going to get everything all messed up. We've got to turn to Christ. Turn to the author of reality. Turn to the author of truth. He is the one that we go to. And it's by putting on that faith, putting on the Word of God, that we, we place ourselves in the full armor of God, as uh, Paul refers to in chapter 6 of Ephesians. And third... Making the conscious decision to be obedient to Christ and His church. Jesus said to the disciples, and by extension to all of us, in uh, the 28th chapter of Matthew, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Nothing scares the devil like a man or a woman committed to fulfilling the Great Commission. And today, in just a few moments, we stand with our brothers today to ask God the Holy Spirit to fill them in such a powerful way that they will be empowered to join with us in fulfilling the Great Commission. And to that I say... Amen.